someone's going to turn the mic on. Please. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. Jazakallah khair for coming out. I know the times uh, changed a bit and it's slightly earlier than what we're used to. So inshallah for the rest of the winter now, from uh, this week onwards, more or less, I think throughout the whole winter, uh, the class is going to be at 7 o'clock. Salat al Isha is at 7. The class will start at 7.30 insha'Allah until like Maghrib starts getting you know, back towards that time and then obviously Isha will become delayed and so on. But anyway, until then, um, insha'Allah we're at 7.30. And it's cold. I'm cold. Uh, but anyway, I must be allowed to sort out, sort out some heating or something. But this place is cold. So last week we started with um, Surah Al-Nas. Uh, as our first surah, inshallah, that we're going to do the tafsir of. And we've, um, I think last week we just kind of went through the introduction of the surah and we spoke about some of the issues related to the names of the surah and where it was revealed and when it was revealed and the cause of revelation and some of those like side issues that were um, introductory issues to surah al-nas. And today, inshallah, what we're going to kind of do is speak about the general meaning of the surah. So what the scholars say that the general meaning of the surah is and then, you know, either uh, towards the end of the lesson, if we have time, or maybe not the next week, inshallah, we'll go through a more detailed word-for-word, verse-to-verse meaning of the surah. So I wanted to begin with um, a statement of uh, Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di, rahimahullah, in his tafsir. Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di, for those of you who aren't familiar with that name or that individual, that scholar, he's a relatively uh, contemporary scholar. He passed away less than 100 years ago. So he's not you know, like someone that, that was living hundreds of years ago, centuries ago. He's someone who's relatively recent. Uh, he was a scholar who lived in Qasim, which is a region of Saudi Arabia. And um, he's actually probably, probably what he's most famous for is uh, the fact that he's the teacher of Sheikh Ibn al-Thaymeen, rahimahullah. So Sheikh Ibn al-Thaymeen is one of the great scholars and jurists and fuqaha of our time. For those of you that are attending Sheikh Abu Isa's logical progression, the book that he's going through, or the metan, the text that he's going through, which is Zad, it's a Hanbali text. He's actually going through the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen's, uh, his commentary on that text, his, his explanation of that text. So Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen has an explanation of Zad called Sharh al Mumti', and that's what Sheikh Abu Isa is doing, right? Which I always think, subhanAllah, it's funny, right? Like we have to do now an explanation of the explanation of what the text is, right? So the scholars, when they wrote their texts, they wrote them for the people of their time, and they didn't really think of doing an explanation because it wasn't needed. And then, you know, a couple of centuries pass by, and scholars come, and they're like, oh, okay, this is too hard, it's too difficult, we need to do an explanation of the text, and they do an explanation. And then a few more centuries pass by, and then we come and we're like, the explanation's too hard, someone needs to do an explanation of the explanation, right? And subhanAllah, it shows, as the Prophet ﷺ kind of prophesied, that as time goes on, knowledge becomes rare, becomes more difficult, becomes harder to understand and grasp. And so, you know, subhanAllah, with every generation that passes, we lose some of that knowledge. Anyway, the point here being that Shaykh uh, Ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullah, his foremost, perhaps his greatest, foremost teacher, the one who he spent the greatest amount of time with, uh, is a Shaykh by the name of Abdurrahman al-Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala. And like I said, I think he passed away less than 100 years ago. 
the end of like, you know, like 1370 Hijri or something like that. So it's like 70, 80 years ago. And Shah Abdul Rahman al-Sa'di, rahimahullah, he had uh, books on a number of topics and you know, he, he wrote a number of works. But perhaps his most famous book that most people know about is his tafsir. And his tafsir is a single volume tafsir. Uh, it's a single volume tafsir uh, and it's meant to be a very basic tafsir. So it's not a tafsir that goes into a great amount of detail. It's not something which goes into volumes and volumes. It's a, single, it's a big volume, but it's a single volume tafsir. And what he does with you know, a, a verse or a group of verses or maybe a small chapter or surah of the Qur'an is within a sentence or two or three, he will give a tafsir of that surah or that verse or that group of verses. And so it's a very like concise tafsir. Right? So when you go to the books of tafsir, you have like the long tafsir, like al-Tabari and Ibn Abi Hatim, and you know, like volumes and volumes. And then you have the ones that are like kind of in between, not too long, not too short. Um, you know, like there are three, four, five volumes, maybe six volumes. And then you come to the single volume or two volume editions of tafsir, and that's where tafsir al-Sa'di sits in. But at the same time, it's actually a very nice tafsir. If you want a basic tafsir that will give you the understanding of a verse of the Qur'an and give you an overall general meaning so that you can grasp what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in those verses, tafsir al-Sa'di is something which is very nice. And I often think that actually, you know, when you're doing something and you're, you're making it very, um, uh, very concise and you're trying to bring all of that information down into a very concise statement or a very short amount of time, it's actually harder then when you have plenty of time, right? So people often think, oh, you know, like it's a khutbah, Jum'a khutbah, it was only 20 minutes, right? The guy can sit, sit there and waffle, or stand there and waffle, right? And, you know, sometimes that's what some of our khatibs do, unfortunately. They come for the khutbah and it's like 20 minutes and, you know, it's just whatever comes into their head. But actually, if you look at the way the khutbah is meant to be, it's meant to be concise, and it's meant to be short, but that's actually harder to do, to give a powerful, succinct message that someone can take away in five, ten minutes is much harder than when you have like two hours to just speak, right? And so even our tafsir, you know, this tafsir, like we take a month just doing a'udhu billahi min shaytanir rajim. Because I don't have that time pressure. I know that, you know, if I don't get to do it this week, I just leave it to next week. And if it's not next week, we carry on to the third week and the fourth week. But imagine if someone came to you and said, I want the tafsir of Surah Nas in five minutes or two minutes. Literally all of that information, compress it, and in a succinct, you know, like eloquent way, in two minutes, explain to me the meaning of that surah. That is actually harder to do. And it takes more preparation, and it takes more work, and it is a greater knowledge that is required in order to be able to do that. And so that's why when you come across a tafsir that's short, sometimes people dismiss it, or it's just like, you know, a verse or, a, sorry, a sentence or two for every verse. But it's actually something which, if it's done well, is extremely powerful. And so uh, Tafsir al-Sa'di is actually a very nice Tafsir. Um, I don't think it's in English. For what I know, I think they translated a couple of volumes, like maybe Juz Amma, Juz Tabarak in English. But I, don't, I, don't, I think the Jalalain is the one that's been completely done in English. But Tafsir al-Sa'di, I mean, the problem with the English one, there will be four volumes by the time they finish, right? That one volume Tafsir ends up being three, four volumes anyway by the time it's translated. But anyway... Uh, in Tafsir al-Sa'di, uh, Shaykh Sa'di rahimahullah, in his, in his like, general meaning uh, and scope of this surah, Surah Al-Nas, and I thought I'd mention this because it's very nice, very concise the way he does it. He says that this surah is or comprises of seeking refuge in the Lord of mankind and the King of mankind and the God of mankind 
from shaitan, who is the essence of every single evil. Shaitan, who is the essence, so you seek refuge in Allah using those three names, that Allah is the Lord, the King, the God, from shaitan, who is the essence of every single evil. And he is the one who spreads that evil. Right? So shaitan is the source of the evil, and then he's the one who spreads that evil by whispering into the hearts of people. And he makes the evil that he wants to spread seem good to them. Right? So he entices us towards the evil. So it's something which we know that's haram, something which is disobedience to Allah, something which Allah has told us to stay away from. But what shaitan does is he makes it appear good, in one way or another. Right? He makes it appear as something which is acceptable. And he makes us accustomed to it, so that it becomes good. So for example, when you see something for the first time, you know, like a person, for example, has never seen alcohol, never seen you know, wine in his life. And they come and they see alcohol and you say, oh, that's what alcohol is. They'll be like, a'udhu billah. Right? And they'll become really upset and they'll, they'll dismiss it. And they won't even want to look at it or in its direction or whatever. Because it's something that they've never seen before and never experienced. And their heart has you know, the, the inbuilt fitrah which says stay away from that thing. But then the second time, their reaction isn't as extreme. And the third time, it's not as severe. And the fourth time it becomes easy and more acceptable. And the fifth and the sixth time, until, you know, like for us who live in a society where, you know, you see everywhere, oh, it's normal, right? You don't even notice it anymore. Driving down and people are drinking or you go to a shop and there's alcohol, you wouldn't even notice. Go to a restaurant, doesn't even make you think twice because it's something which becomes, we become accustomed to it. And that's without, you know, inshallah, getting close to it or drinking it or consuming it. But then what happens is shaitan takes that as a step sometimes for some people and he takes it to another level. And that is when people now start to consume. Right? Like interest. Right? Interest becomes so common and it becomes so prevalent amongst the community that people don't even question that it's haram. It's become something normal, something that you just do. Right? Not giving zakah, not paying zakah. So common for people not to pay their zakah now. It is, you know, from all of the pillars of Islam, probably the one that is least understood and most neglected, the pillar of zakah. Because people have just become so accustomed to it. So this is what shaitan does. Not only does he make the evil appear good, but then he makes us accustomed to it, the evil, so that we begin to embrace it in our own way. And that's what he says, Shah Sa'dirahimullah goes on and he says, and then over time, what happens is we start to embrace that evil. We start to perform it, right? We start to do it. So the first time you perform that sin and it's difficult upon you. But the second time, the third time, as it becomes habitual and it becomes a habit, then it becomes something which we become accustomed to. And at the same time, then he says what happens often is that shaitan will do the opposite with good deeds. So he takes the good that we know that we should be doing, and he distances it from it, right? Makes it distanced from us. So for example, you know, like now, salah. Salah becomes difficult. Why? Because it's heavy and burdensome and difficult to do. And you know, like in the summer, fajr is so early and isha is so late and so on and so forth. And then that's how shaitan starts, right? The first step is, okay, I won't, um, you know, I won't pray in the masjid. Second step then is, I'll delay my salah. The third step then is, or I'll miss the salah. The fourth step then is, I miss two or three salahs. The fifth step is, then I, don't, I just stop praying. Right? And then it's only Jum'ah prayer, only Eid prayer. And for some people, not even Jum'ah or Eid prayer. And so this is what shaitan does, and it is from the tricks and the, uh, the traps of shaitan. 
So this is what Shaykh Al-Sa'di says, this, that this surah is about seeking protection and refuge in Allah from shaitan whose evil is something that we don't understand. Something you can't even begin to grasp. And when we're speaking about isti'adha, I know we spoke about some detail about shaitan and the evil of shaitan and so on and so forth. But this surah is very much in that same vein, right? It's very much in that same theme. And that is that the hidden evil is greater and more apparent, right? Or sorry, is greater and more dangerous, not more apparent, it is greater and more dangerous than the apparent evil. The hidden evil is greater and more dangerous to us than the apparent evil. You know, it's like illness, right? You go to hospital and people are sick. People have heart issues, people have cancer, people have so on. And, and so on and so forth. They have those illnesses and diseases and problems that they're going through. But they're apparent to us in, in, in some way or extent. You can see that someone's physically ill, right? They do those observations, they do those tests, they take people's blood pressure, they take their blood sugar levels and so on. And they can tell that there's something wrong in the body. And so there's like an apparent, you know, like there's, a, there's an outward signal or sign to show that, show that this person has an illness. And that's what we focus on. We focus on the apparent. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to us in this surah, in surah Nas, is that it's the hidden dangers that we're neglectful of, that we're heedless of, that are more dangerous, that are more potent, that we should be more aware of, that our God should be greater and stronger when it comes to those types of dangers. And those are the dangers of shaitan, and the dangers of having a heart that's full of illnesses and diseases, right? So if you look at the sharia, sharia is beautiful, because the sharia tells us Pray, tells us give zakat, tells us perform hajj, tells us fast, tells us be good to our parents and so on. But then the sharia tells us that all of those actions are based upon our intention and based upon our love for Allah and based upon our certainty in Allah and our trust in Allah and all of those things that are hidden that no one else can see. It's between us and it's between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and the sharia does the opposite as well. Right? The Sharia says to us, yes, there are certain things that are physical, that are haram, stay away from them. Don't drink, and don't commit uh, zina, and don't kill, and don't steal, and so on and so forth. But then the Sharia also tells us that there are dangers that we don't see from the diseases within us, in our character, in our hearts, that are greater that we should be more frightened of. Right? So we should be more aware of things like arrogance, and jealousy, and pride, and you know, like hatred for one another, and all of those issues that are mentioned in the Sharia. And it all comes back down to the issue of how the Sharia merges between the two, right? And that's what the Mu'awwidateen do, right? So as we said, when you speak about Surah Nas, you can't really speak about Surah Nas without speaking about Surah Al-Falaq, right? The two of them are together. And some of the scholars have more mentioned this point because some of the scholars, what they did is that they, um, you know, they did like a, the connection between the two surahs. While the two surahs so closely linked, and some of them said it's because the two surahs complete one another. One speaks about outward evil and danger, and the other one speaks about inward evil and danger. But the focus that Allah places between the two surahs, the focus on the inward hidden danger is greater than the outward danger. Because that's the one that we're most neglectful of. That's the one that we don't see, right? And even with our children, you know, we prepare our children in so many ways and we try to safeguard them and we try to like protect them from so many harms and evils. But what about the hidden evils, right? That they don't see, that they can't see, that they're not aware of, right? What about working on things like their character? And, you know, like, so even for example, the hadith, the famous hadith of the Prophet when he's speaking about the Dajjal, 
The Dajjal is an apparent evil that will come and he will cause fasad and evil and corruption upon the earth and he will entice people to make kufr and disbelieve in Allah and worship other than Allah and so on. So when the Prophet ﷺ came out one day to his companions and they were speaking about the Dajjal, and he said to them, what are you discussing? And they said, O Messenger of Allah, we're discussing the Dajjal. And the Prophet ﷺ said, shall I not inform you of something that I am more afraid of for you than the Dajjal? Even though we know the other hadith, that the Prophet ﷺ said, that there isn't a trial that will come from the time of Adam until the Dajjal that is greater, uh, the time of Adam until Yawm Al-Qiyamah that is greater than the Dajjal. No trial that is greater than the Dajjal from the beginning of time to the end of time. Right? And you know, there's other hadith to that effect that not a, not a single prophet of Allah came except that he warned his people against the Dajjal. Right? All of the prophets gave that same warning against the Dajjal because his evil is great. But what is... What did the Prophet say? There is something that I am more afraid of for you, my ummah, than the Dajjal. And then he said, hidden shirk. Right? Hidden shirk. What is hidden shirk? Showing off. To impress someone in your worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not because you're worshipping them, not because you consider them to be able to give you provision or life or death, or because you're asking them to give you a child or... No. That's not, that's shirk, that's proper shirk when you do get to that level. That is shirk in itself. Hidden shirk is just to show off and to impress someone. You make your salah longer and better because someone's watching. You give more money in charity because you know someone will praise you. Right? You go the extra mile because you know others will approve of you. And so you do it for them and not necessarily for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I am more afraid of you for that type of shirk. That type, why is that type of shirk more dangerous? Because it's not something which is apparent. Not something even great like open shirk is shirk. People know, right? Someone's worshipping a grave, you know they're worshipping a grave. They're slaughtering to other than Allah, you know they're slaughtering to other. If they're making tawaf around someone's house or grave, whatever they do, you know that that's what they're doing. But hidden shirk is between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No one knows, right? You're not going to show someone that you're showing off. You're not going to let them know. But it's something which is in your heart. And so the surah, like the whole surah speaks about this concept and this, this part of our religion that we're often very neglectful of, right? And even if you look at the, the many hadith, the many verses of the Qur'an, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places emphasis on the heart, right? The heart as being the most important part of the body, right? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi said, you know, it's the famous hadith, if there is a, there's a morsel of flesh in the body, if it's correct and upright, the body becomes correct and upright. And if it becomes corrupt and evil, then the body becomes corrupt and evil, and it is the heart. Right? And then the hadith, I think of Hudayfa radiyallahu an, which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, that sins and trials will come across a person as if they are twigs. Right? They will be displayed and presented to you as if they are twigs. Meaning what? Meaning a twig by itself can't do you much harm, right? You go outside, just say you want to build a fire, right? You know, you're outside in, in the forest or wherever you are, the woods. You want to build a fire, a single twig won't do anything. But you bring one twig and two twigs and three and four and another branch and a third branch, and then all of a sudden you have a pile of twigs and branches. Now what do you have? You have a bonfire. Right? It's not even a fire anymore. Now you have something great. Right? And that's what sins do to the heart. A sin by itself, maybe it's not you know, the end of the world, it's just one sin. Right? And as we know the hadith, 
every single sin, every time you sin, a black dot is placed in the heart. Either you make toba, in which case it is cleared, or it stays. Until there are two types of heart, one that is pure and one that becomes impure. Right? And so this is what the Prophet ﷺ is saying, right? Beware of these issues of the heart. When the Prophet ﷺ said, I've only come to perfect the character. In all of those hadith that we hear that speak about the inner self before they speak about the outer self. When the Prophet ﷺ spoke about taqwa and piety and he pointed to the heart and he said, At-taqwa ha-huna. This is where piety is, right? And so everything that we do, everything that we you know, in terms of our worship, in terms of coming closer to Allah, in terms of the knowledge that we seek, the greater goal is to, number one, purify our inner selves, and number two, protect our inner selves from shaitan. Right? Because once you've done the, the inner work, the outer work becomes easier. Whereas to flip it the other way, when we just worry about our outer you know, appearance and the way that we are and the way that we look and the way that people perceive us, but inside of us we have diseases and we're, you know, like we're filthy and we're impure and we have all of these issues, that is a greater harm, right? That is a greater evil, there's a greater problem because that's where iman is. Right? Iman is in the heart and taqwa is in the heart and all of those actions that make up our religion, tawheed, all of those things come and emanate from the heart. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah, Surah Nas, is an amazing surah. And it's a surah that we read often. Right? And we don't really think about it twice and we don't really contemplate over it. But it is an extremely powerful surah. And that's why these two surahs, especially Surah Falak, Surah Nas, they're the mu'awwidhateen, right? They're the ones that give you protection. When you're ill, you read them. Right? When you wake up, you read them. When you sleep, you read them. After salah, you read them. If you want to read over your children, these are the two surahs you read. Why? Because they speak about protection from all evil. And they place the whole emphasis or emphasis in Surah Nas is placed on the evil that is hidden and that isn't apparent. So I wanted to speak about like some, uh, what some of the scholars mentioned in terms of the connection between Surah Nas and Surah Farq al-Mu'awwidhateen. There are um, a number of scholars who spoke about this, um, this concept right, or this particular issue of connecting between these two surahs. What is the connection between the two surahs? So the first of those connections that some of those scholars mention is, as we just said, that Surah Falak speaks about the apparent outward dangers and harms, and Surah Nas speaks about the inward and the hidden dangers and harms, right? So Surah Falak, you seek refuge from the evil that Allah has created, right? And from the people who blow in knots, meaning magicians and sorcerers. And you speak about the evil of the night and what it may bring, right? People like who steal and kill and all of that stuff that happens under the cover of darkness, that's the apparent danger. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Nas, He speaks about the hidden danger. And that is shaitan and his whispering, right? And what he's enticing people to do. And the hidden danger that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the final surah of the Quran. Number two, the second link between those two surahs is therefore that Surah Falaq is general, generic, and Surah Nas is specific. Right? Surah Falaq begins with the most general verse. Min sharri ma khalaq. From the evil, the everything that Allah has created. Right? And that includes everything. Includes shaitan, includes internal dangers, includes external dangers, includes everything. Min sharri ma khalaq. Right? We ask Allah to protect us from the evil of everything that is created. But then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? For the rest of Surah Falaq and Surah Nas, He goes into specifics. 
And it's nice that some of the scholars of tafsir, they say that it's as if Allah Azza wa Jal is going from the less dangerous to the most dangerous. Right? So he's mentioned the general thing, every type of evil, you know, whatever the evil may be, any evil that may come to harm you, harm your family, you ask Allah Azza wa Jal for protection from it. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies certain dangers, right? Specifies the danger of the night, right? There's, there's you know, evil that happens at night. Most people are more likely to do evil and wrong and oppression under the cover of darkness as opposed to light, right? And obviously, you know, remember in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, especially, no electricity, there's no street lights, you know, it's not like now where even in the middle of the night it's like daylight anyway. But in those days and even, you know, today in some certain parts of the world, at night after sunset, you don't come out, right? And that was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Wouldn't like to uh, sleep before Isha and wouldn't like to stay up after Isha, right? So before Isha, that's time for you to do what you want. After Salat al-Isha, the Prophet ﷺ would go home and he would rest, right? So all this nightlife business, you know, staying up to midnight, not sleeping, all that kind of stuff, it's not something which the companions understood or knew, right? Unless it was for ibadah, right? Nightlife is tahajjud. Right, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. So otherwise, you sleep, right? you rest. It's not the time to go out. And it was considered um, you know, like weird or abnormal or uh, you know, something's wrong if you're out in the middle of the night for no good reason. Right? It wasn't something which is done. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes into even more specifics. Then Allah speaks about the danger of magic. Right? Those who blow on their knots, meaning magicians and sorcerers, that is a greater harm and a greater evil. Right? Because the person who's stealing or wanting to do something at night isn't necessarily after you personally, they're just after your money and your wealth and they want your car, they don't really care about you. But this person who's now a magician or sorcerer, they're actually gunning for you and your family and your well being and they don't want you to succeed. So it is a greater harm. وَمِنْ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسَدٍ right? In Surah Falaq, the evil of the one who envies, right? jealousy. Right? Because often much of that evil comes from jealousy. A person who steals, steals because they're jealous of something that you have that they don't have, that they can't have. Right? The person who asks someone to put magic on someone else, to do sorcery upon them, it's because they don't like something that they have. They're not happy with something. Be it marriage, be it because they want someone to get divorced, be it because they have some beef with them over money or land or property, it's because of jealousy, right? So jealousy comes from, or from jealousy comes the essence of many things, right? And then in Surah Nas, Allah goes to even more specific detail, and that is the evil of, of shaitan, right? The evil of Iblis and his whisperings, because that's where all of this emanates from. Shaitan is the one who whispers into someone's heart, makes them feel that jealousy, that envy, that hatred, and then that leads on to all of that evil. Right? Shaitan is the one who comes and entices stealing at, at night or oppression or killing or murder, whatever it may be. He's the one who entices people to do that, plants that seed, and then he leaves and that person goes and they do that sin. So that's the second like, connection between the two surahs or link between the two surahs. The third is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show the dangers that are hidden to show that the dangers which are hidden are greater and worse than the dangers which are apparent, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the eloquence of the Arabic language. So in Surah Al-Falaq, Allah Azza wa Jal, you seek refuge in Allah once. Right? And then you seek refuge and protection in Allah from three things. 
So you, you mention Allah's name once and you seek protection in three things. Right? You follow? So, بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقْ then مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقْ four things. مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقْ وَمِنْ شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ إِذَا وَقَبْ وَمِنْ شَرِّ نَفَّاثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدْ وَمِنْ شَرِّ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسَدْ Right? Seek refuge from four things and I don't want to go into the whole Surah Falaq because it's on Surah Nas and now it's going to get, start to get confusing. But if you, you know, like you just generally follow the points, you seek refuge in Allah once, but from four things. Right? And all of those four things are apparent outward dangers. And to seek refuge in Allah once is sufficient to cover all of those outward harms and evils and dangers. But then when you come to Surah Nas, it's flipped. You seek refuge in Allah three times you mention Allah. Using three different names of Allah, three different attributes and powers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Birabbin nas, malikin nas, ilahin nas. And those three are used to seek protection from what? From just one thing. Min sharril waswasil khannas. From the evil of the one who whispers, from shaitan. And the rest of the surah does what? Explains the evil. This goes into detail. What is he? He's al-waswas, al-khannas, al-ladhi yuwaswisu fi suduri nas min al-jinnat. The rest of the surah is an explanation of that one evil. Whereas in surah Falaq, Allah doesn't explain. Allah doesn't say, oh, the night, you know, min shadi ghasiqin idha waqab, when the night comes, these are the dangers that you may be exposed to. Or when it comes to sorcery and magic, these are some of the examples or the dangers that you may be exposed to. Or when it comes to envy and jealousy, these are some of the harms and the evils of envy and jealousy. Allah doesn't need to go into detail. But because in Surah An-Nas the danger is so great, we seek refuge in Allah three times, using three different names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? which in itself is, is very uh, beautiful and uh, you know, like inshallah we'll, we'll speak about that shortly. And then we seek refuge in Allah from one thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes into detail to, right? Showing you, again, the, where the emphasis lays, right? And so that's why, you know, like our religion, you know, when it comes to tarbiyah to our children, when it comes to us as individuals, our families, our spouses, we have to put more effort and more time and concentration on working on those inner issues, right? That's what the Prophet ﷺ did when 13 years in Mecca, he's working on iman. He's working on taqwa. He's working on fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's working on the companions, building up that level of consciousness of Allah azza wa jal, so that when the time comes for jihad, when the time comes for this is halal and this is haram, when the time comes for this is wajib and this you must stay away from, the companions have no shred of doubt. Right? Otherwise, how can you be like, for example, you know, you're drinking one day and then all of a sudden oh, alcohol is haram and you just leave it. Never touch it again. That's extremely difficult to do, right? All of a sudden now, you know, you have to go and give zakat, 2.5% of your wealth, you have to give it away, right? All of a sudden now, you have to start fasting for 12 hours, 14, 16 hours a day. It's extremely difficult to do unless you have that solid foundation of iman and taqwa and that strong heart that's able to do that, right? And that's why it's important to fix and work on that issue. Number four, the fourth connection between the two surahs, as we said, is that they complement one another, right? They complete one another. So one speaks about outward dangers, one speaks about internal dangers. Um, number five, both of them begin with the same words, right? right? A commandment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to seek protection in Him. 
right? To seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Both of them begin with the same, uh, with the same beginning of, or the same few words to begin that surah. Al-Imam al-Baqa'i rahimahullah ta'ala. Al-Baqa'i is a scholar who um, is from the students of Ibn Hajar. He's a scholar of tafsir. His name is al-Baqa'i. And he uh, was a student from the students of Ibn Hajar. Rahimahullah. Ibn Hajar, you know, I'm sure you've heard that name. One of the greatest scholars of hadith. He's the one who wrote the explanation of Sayyid al-Bukhari. You know, like many like scholars of, of, of hadith considered to him to be one of the greatest muhaqqiqs or verifiers of hadith and so on. He's like an amazing scholar of hadith. Al-Imam al-Buqa'i is one of his students. And he was also known for hadith and, and so on. But he has an amazing work in tafsir called Nazm al-Durar. And Nazm al-Durar is a book, I think it's like four, five, six volumes, I don't remember now. But it's a few volumes and it's a book which speaks about the connection between different surahs. Right, the connection between how does Surah Falak relate to Surah Nas? How does Surah Ikhlas relate to Surah Falak? Right? Uh, you know, and, and when we were speaking about the contemplation of the Quran in the course that I did a couple of weeks ago in Birmingham, we spoke about this issue where how do we connect different surahs with one another? Some of the scholars wrote books on this. Right? They wrote whole volumes going from the beginning of the Quran to the end, showing what is the connection between surahs of the Quran, passages of the Quran, verses of the Quran. How do they connect with one another? Right? Because one of the things that we have problems with is understanding the relevance of surahs and verses of the Quran and how we understand that they're not random. Right? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala skip from topic to topic? Why does Allah azza wa mention only a couple of verses concerning the story of a prophet that he mentions, for example, marriage, then he'll go on to hajj, and then he's constantly moving from topic to topic, especially in the longer surahs of the Qur'an. How do we understand the connection between, between those topics, between the surahs? Right? How does surah Fatiha relate to Baqarah? Baqarah to Ali Imran, Ali Imran to An-Nisa, and so on and so forth. So some of the scholars, they, like, they, they put some time and effort into this and, and try to come back. And by the way, this is like um, an issue of ijtihad. Right? You won't find this in a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ. He never spoke about these issues, how they relate to one another and so on. But the scholars from their own ijtihad, from reading throughout the books of tafsir and the books of hadith and from the knowledge that they gathered, some of them came up with what they considered to be you know, like connections and relationships between surahs. So from amongst those scholars is Al-Imam Al-Buqa'i rahimahullah ta'ala. So Al-Imam Al-Buqa'i says concerning the connection between Surah Falaq and Surah Nas, he says, Surah Falaq, in it we seek refuge in Allah from every evil. Right? From every evil. And that includes evil of every time and every place and every generation. Right? Every type of evil. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes into specifics as we said, so he speaks about, for example, evil, speaks about magic, speaks about envy, speaks about jealousy, and so on. And those uh, issues that Allah mentions speak about two types of oppression. Either oppressing yourself or oppressing someone else. Right? Oppression is of two types. Either you oppress yourself, meaning if you're not harming someone else, but you're sinning, you're still oppressing yourself. Right? As Allah often says in the Qur'an, وَمَا ظَلَمْنَاهُمْ we didn't oppress them, but they used to oppress themselves. So if I sin, but that sin doesn't harm anyone else, it's a sin between me and Allah, I have oppressed myself. I'm harming myself, I'm hurting myself. But if that sin now affects someone else, it's harming someone else, you're stealing, right? So you're taking from someone else's property. 
murder, you're killing someone else who didn't deserve to be killed, and so on and so forth. That is now oppression towards others as well. So he says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he mentions these different types of sins in the Quran in Surah Falaq and Surah Nas, he speaks about sins that are not just limited to a time and place, number one. And number two, they cover every type of sin, right, by way of example. So they cover sins that only deal with me personally, us personally as individuals, oppression of oneself, and they deal with sins in which we oppress others. And then he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions as the worst of them, hasad. Right? So we know when he said that it's going through grades, hasad, jealousy. Because he said jealousy was the essence of evil for man and for, and for the jinn. It was the essence of evil and sin. Jealousy was essence of evil and sin for man and for jinn. Now what I want you to do is I want you to think with me. What's he referring to? Okay, so that's the easy one. Right, what's, what about shaitan? You can't just say shaitan and... Okay, so shaitan's one, his, the essence of his sin is what? Jealousy, right? And arrogance and pride, right? Why? Because he thought that he was better than Adam, right? And so he said, as Allah mentions many times in the Quran, I am better than him. He has the jealousy. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Iblis and all of the angels to prostrate before Adam alayhi salam, he became arrogant, he became jealous of what, what the, the virtue that's been afforded to Adam over him, the superiority of Adam alayhi salam over him. And so he leads him to sin. I think that's the easy one. How is it the essence of sin amongst people? The sins of Adam. The two sins of Adam. So the first sin that is recorded in the Quran amongst the people that we know of is the sins of Adam, the two sins of Adam. Right? And that's the first murder as well right? that's committed on earth. And the Prophet wasallam said in the authentic hadith that there is not a murder that is committed except that a share of that blood goes back to the first son of Adam because he is the first one who established the practice of murder upon earth. Right? And as the hadith says that when you do something good and people follow in your footsteps, you get a share of that reward. But if they do something evil or you do something evil, you start that evil, and other people follow in, in your footsteps, then you get a share of the evil. So the two sons of Adam. What is the story of the two sons of Adam? Very briefly, you know, I'm sure like you've come across it. But both of them, you know, according to some scholars of Tafsir, they both wanted to marry the same woman or whatever. They both wanted the same thing. And so they were told to both give a sacrifice. Give a sacrifice. So one of the two sons thought, Allah doesn't need my wealth, right? doesn't need anything from me. Allah's rich and Allah's and doesn't need anything that I can give. So I'll give him, you know, the leftovers that I have. Right? And it said that he was a man of vegetation, you know, a man of produce, agriculture, and like the seeds and the and the vegetation that he had that was kinda of like going off, wasn't any good to anyone. He gave that away in charity. Right? And in those days before our Sharia, how did Allah accept charity, show people's giving is accepted? A fire, right, would come, right? Like in war booty, right? So before Islam, before the Sharia of the Prophet ﷺ, I say before Islam, but obviously they were all Muslims. But anyway, uh, before the Sharia of the Prophet ﷺ, war booty, spoils of war, weren't taken by people. 
They weren't taken by soldiers or by the generals or by the prophets. They were gathered and left. And if Allah accepted the jihad of those people, a fire would come and consume it. And if not, then it would become impure. And it shows that Allah hasn't accepted it. That's obviously not the case in our time because more beauty was allowed for the Prophet and so on. It's not something which happens anymore, but it was something which was a sign for the nations that came before us. So he gave that as charity. The second son of Adam, he gave the best of his wealth. And he was a man of livestock. Had you know, cows and sheep and goats and so on. And he found the best of his livestock that he was saving, that he was prizing, you know, it was like prized possession. And that's what he gave and he started for the sake of Allah. So Allah Azza wa accepted the best of what, he, what that one gave. And the other son that gave him just leftovers, he rejected him. So the second son, the one who's been rejected, his sacrifice has been rejected, he became jealous, envious. And he said to him, I will kill you. Right? That's what he leads to. And so that's what Imam al-Buqa'i is saying. Right? So when Allah mentions hasad and jealousy as the worst of the sins that he mentions in Surah Faraq, he does so for a reason. Because it is the essence of sin that we find amongst the jinn, right? with Iblis and so on, and we find amongst people. Right? And that's why, you know, as we, you know, the, the hadith that speak about jealousy are many in the Sharia, and it's often uh, referred to and likened to fire. Right? Jealousy, you know, rages like fire, it's like wildfire, because it's extremely difficult to keep. Right? It's extremely difficult to control and to maintain, because once it's out there, it can lead to oppression. It can lead to murder, as it's done in these instances. Right? But then he says, and Imam al-Buqa'i, going on to the connection between Surah Falaq and Surah Nas, right? so we, that's dealt with Surah Falaq, he says, but then Surah Nas speaks about the waswasa, right? there's the whisperings of shaitan. And that's because that's the essence of where hasad comes from. Right? And so it's like a very beautiful statement. So he's kind of like gone through all of Surah Falaq, and then he said, but Surah Nas, Allah emphasizes it even more, because even jealousy, which is the worst of those sins that Allah Azza wa is highlighting for us, the most dangerous, and it's the essence of evil amongst people and jinn and so on, but the essence of that jealousy will come from Iblis' whisperings. Right? That's when shaitan comes and he whispers to you. Right? And so, when, and jealousy is basically when you want someone, you want evil for someone, right? you want the good that they have to be removed from them. Right? You want the good that they have to be removed from them. And in their place, in its place, you either want them to have evil or you want them to become destitute. Right? So, um, so that's something which, uh, which some of the scholars mention. Another um, point that, I, that is also very interesting that some of the scholars of Tafsir mention um, is why, and actually the, the points that we mentioned, by the way, before we carry on, they also speak as to why Surah Nas comes after Surah Falaq. And why not Surah Falaq first and then Surah Nas? Because Surah Falaq, as we said, starts with the more generic stuff, and then it's working its way into more specifics, right? And so that's what some of the scholars said as well. So Surah Falaq starts with more generic stuff, so it comes first, and then Surah Nas becomes more and more specific, and that's why the Quran finishes with Surah Al-Nas. Um, another interesting point that some of the scholars did is that they linked the two surahs, the Mu'awidatin, Falaq Al-Nas, with Surah Al-Ikhlas. Right, and as we know, Surah Ikhlas is the surah that comes before Falaq al-Nas. Right? So how does Surah Ikhlas connect with the two? So some of the scholars said, because Surah Al-Ikhlas is a surah that speaks about what? It speaks about Allah. Right? Allah. 
and it describes Allah and it speaks about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it's as if those scholars said that the greatest way and the greatest defense, if you like, from the evils that ev- of everything that Allah mentions in Surah Falaq and Surah Nas is by strengthening your worship, your iman, your tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it has a very nice, you know, like symmetry, it has a very nice, um, if you like, narrative between these three surahs. Surah Ikhlas speaks about Tawheed, coming closer to Allah, building up your Iman, knowing about Allah, learning about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's as if Allah is saying that if you have that strong basis, that foundation of Iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then nothing will harm you. Nothing can harm you in the heavens and the earth except by the permission of Allah. Allah will give you His divine care and His divine protection. You don't need to worry about anything because you will have Allah's care and Allah's protection. And nothing in the heavens and the earth can harm you if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you. And that's an amazing lesson to teach. It's an amazing point to understand. That our iman in Allah Azza wa can protect us from every evil and every harm. Be that apparent illness, disease, poverty, wherever it may be, or be it hidden, something which people can't see, and the whisperings of shaitan and so on. And that's why that beautiful hadith of Ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah, which Imam al-Nawi mentions in his 40 hadith. Right? Imam al-Nawi in his 40 hadith, he gathered 42 hadith that he said, these are the basis of Islam. Right? These are the foundations of Islam. These 42 hadith are the most important hadith you need to know for your religion. From those 42 is the hadith of Ibn Abbas, عنهما, in which the Prophet وسلم, is speaking to him. And Ibn Abbas at this time is what, 12, 13, you know, like a teenager, young teenage boy. And the Prophet وسلم, is teaching him principles that he will remember and you know, listen to and inshallah you know, keep with him for the rest of his life. And from those principles is he says, وَعَلَمْ Know that if all of the universe were to come and to unite in order to benefit you with something, they will only benefit you with that which Allah has already written for you. And know that if all of them were to come and unite in order to harm you with something, they would only harm you with that which Allah has already written to before you. Right? That's an amazing lesson. Right? That you teach someone, and we remember ourselves, that only Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who gives harm and gives benefit. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls everything. So when your iman in Allah Azza wa Jal is strong, and that's what Surah Ikhlas is about, you know, solidifying that tawheed of Allah, coming closer to Allah, strengthening iman, then everything else will become easy. And all of those harms, all of those dangers that we seek refuge in Allah from in Surah Farq and Surah Nas, then we can overcome that as well. Another interesting point um, is the connection between Surah Nas and Surah Fatiha. Surah Nas and Surah Al-Fatiha. So, you know, like the Quran almost goes, um, you know, like in a circle, right? The ending links back to the beginning. An interesting point here is that the Quran. Right, the people who you know, like they recite Quran and the masters of Quranic recitation and so on. When you do your ijaza, right, if you want to read to a, a qari and you want the ijaza going back to the Prophet the chain of narration to show that you've recited the Quran correctly, what they will make you do is obviously you start from Fatiha, and what they will make you do is when you come to Surah Nas, what will they ask you to do? They will ask you to go over back over Fatiha and the first five verses of Baqarah. Right, And you know, it's not because there's a hadith that says that you have to do that or anything, but it's something 
which they have done and it's a practice amongst them. Why? To show that the Qur'an is linked. Right? And so they will make you, after Surah Nas, go back to Surah Fatiha. You read Surah Fatiha and you read Surah Baqarah. Uh, not Baqarah, five verses of Baqarah. Baqarah again, <laughs> just did all this. So Baqarah, five verses, and then you're done. Right? And that's like a practice, like a sunnah that they have. That, that's how they do it, right? To show that it's linked. So um, some of the scholars did this as well with tafsir. Showed the link between Surah An-Nas and Surah Al-Fatiha. And one of the scholars who, who mentions this and he touches upon this is Adwa'u um, al Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, who's also... You know, like a fairly contemporary scholar, he also passed away. You know, less than maybe sixty or seventy years ago. Um, who is originally from Mauritania, and then he settled and lived in Saudi Arabia for many years, and that's where he passed away. Rahimahullah Taala, and he's also considered from the teachers of Sheikh Muhammad and many of the senior scholars of Saudi Arabia today. Um, he taught in the Islamic University of Medina for many years as well. An amazing scholar, and uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al Amin, his tafsir, which is called Adwa'ul Bayan. It's again like seven, eight volumes. Is a tafsir of the Quran by the Quran. Right? So he just covers tafsir, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explained the Quran using other verses of the Quran. Right? So the Quran explains the Quran. Before he completed his work, Rahimallah, he passed away. So before he could complete and finish his book, and I don't remember now exactly where he got up to, but he left a significant portion of the book and he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala, before he could complete it. So one of his students, one of his senior uh, students, a man by the name of Sheikh Atiyah Salim, rahimahullah, was also passed away, originally Egyptian, but also settled in Saudi Arabia, um, and he also taught in the University of Medina, lived in Medina, and so on. He came and he completed the book. Right? He was one from the formal students of the Sheikh, studied with him tafsir and many other sciences. So he took the work of the Sheikh and he finished it. Right? And he says that one of the things that the Sheikh wanted to do, and he mentions in Surah Fatiha, is that when we get to Surah Nas, you know, he's saying in his book, you know, don't worry, when we get to Surah Nas, we're going to link it back to Fatiha. Right? But obviously he passed away, rahimahullah, before he could do so. But Sheikh Atiyah Salim, in his, like, because he carried on the book and he finished it off, he, he's one of those scholars that does that. Right? He makes the link between the two surahs. So what is the link uh, between the two surahs? The link between these two surahs is, number one, in both surahs, we seek Allah's help. So we begin the Qur'an by seeking Allah's help and assistance, and we finish the Qur'an by seeking Allah's protection and His assistance. Right? So in Surah Fatiha, what do we say? Right? You alone we worship, you alone we seek assistance from. So it's as if the Qur'an begins by asking Allah for His help and His assistance, and it ends by asking Allah Azza for his protection, which is another form of asking for assistance and help. Right? So that's one of the ways that the two surahs are linked. Another way uh, that the two surahs are linked, um, that some of the scholars mention, is that it's as if the Qur'an, right, the Qur'an contains what? Contains rulings, and contains you know, knowledge, and contains stories of the prophets, and so on. Right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the beginning of the Qur'an, he asks us to seek his help in order to be able to understand it, in order to be able to apply it, in order to be able to implement it and to memorize it and so on. So we ask Allah for his assistance with the Qur'an as well. And then the Qur'an contains everything that it does in those 6,000 odd verses. And then the Qur'an ends by asking Allah's protection. That, oh Allah, protect us from being from amongst those people 
who, which is one of the greatest evils, who have that knowledge but they don't act upon it. Who have the Qur'an but they don't understand it. Right? Who have the Qur'an but they're heedless of it, or they ignore it, or they neglect it. Right? So it's as if you're asking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help between the two. Also, um, from the connections between the two surahs, is the Qur'an one of the major... Um, you know, like one of the major components of the Quran, or one of the major objectives of the Quran, is to establish Tawheed, right? the worship of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And two of the greatest ways of worshiping Allah is to seek Allah's assistance alone, and to seek Allah's protection alone. Right? They're, they're from the two greatest manifestations of worship. So the Quran is all about worshiping Allah alone. Two of the greatest ways in which you can do that is to seek only Allah's help. Only Allah's help. And you know there were companions of the Prophet ﷺ who when they would come and they gave the bay'ah, the pledge of Islam to the Prophet ﷺ and each one you know, would have slightly different wordings. From those wordings is that some of them said that they wouldn't ask of anyone other than Allah. That they wouldn't ask anything from anyone other than Allah. Which meant what? That some of the companions and scholars explained that if one of them was riding on their camel or their horse or their donkey and they had a stick or a whip and it fell from their hands, they wouldn't ask someone, can you pass it to us? But they would stop and they would get down and they would pick it up themselves. And when they would be asked why, they would say, because we made the pledge of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ that we would ask nothing of anyone other than Allah. Right? And that's amazing, right? Because, you know, you could argue that that's not what, what was meant, right? It was meant that, you know, you wouldn't worship, ask anyone in terms of dua, asking Allah in terms of that kind of stuff. But they would take this stuff seriously, right? So when the companion says, I'm not going to ask anyone other than Allah, he means, I'm not going to ask anyone other than Allah, right? And so that's like an understanding. So it is one of the greatest forms and acts of worship to ask Allah alone. And likewise, to seek Allah's protection alone. Because both of them refer to what? They come back to what? Trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tawakkul in Allah. And as the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the famous hadith, لَوْ أَنَّكُمْ تَوَكَّلُونَ عَلَى اللَّهِ حَقَّ تَوَكُّلِهِ لَرَزَقَكُمْ كَمَا يَرْزُقُ الطَّيْرِ تَغْضُوا خِمَاصًا وَتَرُوحُ بِطَانًا If you were to trust in Allah, as you should trust in Him, have haqqut tawakkul, really trust in Allah, Allah will provide for you just as He provides for the birds, the bird leaves in the morning on an empty stomach and it comes back with a full stomach. Leaves in the morning, doesn't know where its risk is, doesn't know where it's going to get food from, doesn't know if it's going to get food, but it trusts in Allah and it works. Right? It just flies and it searches and it puts in the time and the effort, puts in a shift, right? and what does it get? It gets its food. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for it and it comes back with, that, um, you know, with, with the provision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One second. And then um, another connection between the two surahs is that the Prophet ﷺ described the two surahs in a very similar way. So the Mu'awidatin and Surah Fatiha, he gives a description that are very similar. So the Prophet ﷺ said about the Mu'awidatin, remember I think we covered this last week, he said that verses were revealed to me, the likes of which have not been revealed before. Right? Concerning Surah Falaq and Surah Nas, verses of the Qur'an have been revealed to me, the likes of which have not been revealed before. And then what did the Prophet say about Surah Fatiha? There has not been revealed in the Torah or the Injil or the Quran something similar to it. Right? So Surah Falaq al-Nas 
verses that haven't been revealed, the likes of which have never been revealed before. And in Surah Fatiha, not have, nothing in the, in the Torah or the Injil or the Quran has been revealed similar to it. Right? And so therefore it's as if it's unique in its beginning in Surah Fatiha and it's unique in its ending, meaning in Surah uh, An-Nas. And, and we have like um, some more points as well. Can I take them before you ask your question? Let me just finish this off and then inshallah we'll, we'll just take some questions and we'll finish. Right? Um, also, in the names that Allah mentions in both surahs, in Surah Falaq, uh, sorry, in Surah Fatiha and Surah Nas. Right? So in Surah An-Nas, Allah describes himself as what? Rabb Malik Ilah. Rabb Malik Ilah. And Allah Azza wa Jal uses those same three in Surah Fatiha. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmideen So the Allah refers to Ilah Allah and Ilah is the same thing Rabb in both And then you have Malik or Malik Depending on the Qira'ah right? Because you have both in Fatiha And you have Malik in, in Surah Nas as well right? So that's another connection Between the two Surahs Okay uh, and the final one uh, that's also mentioned, the link between Surah Fatiha and Surah Nas, is in Surah uh, Fatiha, we ask Allah Azza wa Jal for steadfastness. Right? We ask Allah for steadfastness. When we make the dua, اِهْدِينَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمُ Oh Allah, keep us upon the straight path. Right? Meaning keep us firm, keep us steadfast. Right? That's what the scholars say. We ask Allah to guide us to the straight path. Why do we keep repeating that dua? Because once you're guided, you're guided, right? What does it mean after you've been guided? It means, oh Allah, keep me steadfast upon the straight path, right? So it's not just about the initial guidance, but oh Allah, keep me firm upon the straight path. And then in Surah An-Nas, you're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more or less the same thing, but in a different way. Because who's the one that takes us away from the straight path? Shaitan. So when you seek Allah's protection from shaitan, you're asking in a different way the same dua. You're asking Allah to keep you steadfast, by protecting you from shaitan, whereas in Surah Fatiha, you're asking Allah to guide you and keep you upon the straight path, meaning upon Islam and the Quran and the Sunnah and so on. Right? And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. But I thought that those were some very nice points that are mentioned. And these are mentioned in different books of tafsir. Uh, as I said, Al-Buqa'i and Al-Qasimi and Adwa'ul Bayan and so on. If you go through them, you'll find all of these different points. But I've just kind of tried to gather them together um, and bring them you know, into like one lesson. Okay, any questions, inshallah? Um, you mentioned about um, asking other people for help. Uh, with regard to the Hadith about Rafiya, and there's also the narration about the, this, this, uh, this Habiya who used to have uh, epile- epileptic fits. Yeah. And uh, the Prophet and she's still asking the Prophet and the Prophet said, um, I can make the out for you, or you can be patient. And, you know, I think he said it was better for her. Yeah. And she said, just make the out of my hours and build from this do we take, therefore, even with medication, can we take the ruling and extend it okay. that far? So the question is in terms of not help, asking other people for help, and then you have the hadith of the companion um, who came and made dua to the Prophet because she was having like fits and so on. And the Prophet said, if you're patient, you will have Jannah. And then she said, okay, but O Messenger of Allah, ask uh, Allah that, that I don't become uncovered, right? My aura doesn't become uncovered. Do we understand from this that it's not something that, that we shouldn't take medication? No. Taking medication is allowed and is something which is halal. 
what is um, you know what is the emphasis of the Sharia is that before you take medication, during medication, after medication, as Muslims, our trust should be first and foremost in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, right? So the problem is, you know, like someone comes and they want, um, you know, like advice for something, and they're like, oh, go and ask your mom, go and ask your dad, go and ask your husband, your wife, your child, and they ask like maybe a hundred people, and then someone's like, did you make dua? They're like, oh yeah, 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 I'll go make dua as well, right? It's like the last thing on the list when everything's done and dusted. It's like, oh yeah, let me go make dua as well, right? Or let me say, inshallah, right? After all, it's like years passed, like yeah, inshallah, right? Because it's something which we've become so distanced from. Whereas it should be the opposite, right? Should be the opposite, where we trust in Allah first, and then we take the necessary means. So even the hadith, the bird doesn't just sit at home and say, look, you know, I'm going to be... Because there's other hadith, right? It doesn't sit at home and say, oh, Allah's going to provide, I trust in Allah. It trusts in Allah, and then it flies and it searches, right? Takes the action, right? The Prophet said there's not a disease that has been sent, except that with it there was a cure. Meaning what? That there are cures that have to be searched for. You have to find them. When you find them, you take them and so on and so forth. So therefore, like searching for that kind of stuff, you know, to, to understand uh, that you don't have to do anything. Even in the practical example of the companions, radiallahu anhum, and so on, there are hadith where the companions gave ruqya and did ruqya and they received something in return, payment for that ruqya. So the, the, the meaning is that you trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then you take the necessary means. Rather than putting your trust in the means and forgetting about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the hadith of the 70,000, that's a good question, right? The hadith of the 70,000 will enter into Jannah without accounting and without punishment, right? From those hadith or from the descriptions that the Prophet gave of the 70,000 is annahum la yastarqoon. What does that mean, la yastarqoon? You know, when it comes to a hadith and verses, right, just as a general point of benefit, you have to be precise and accurate. Right? And one of the greatest dangers that we're falling into is these, like, you know, generic kind of translation, shipshot kind of meaning things that people are going into. And because of it, they get the complete opposite understanding of the Quran and Sunnah than what is being actually said and understood right, and meant. So, what does it mean, La Yastarqoon? It means those who don't seek ruqya. What's the difference? The hadith doesn't say you can't make ruqya. The hadith is saying that though, and by the way, the hadith also isn't saying that it's not allowed for you to seek ruqya from anyone else. But those 70,000 people who have a special privilege, right? They have extra virtue, they have a greater reward, are those who they make ruqya on themselves, but they won't ask other people to make ruqya for them. Because their trust in Allah is greater, right? So it's okay for you to ask people to make dua for you. But it wasn't really the, the practice of the companions that they would ask one. They would ask the person because of his virtue and so on. But they wouldn't really ask one another generally, right? You know, like now it's like kind of a thing. Every time you meet someone, make dua for me, right? It's just become kind of like something you say. It's not like something you find amongst the companions, right? Other than on a couple of occasions. Because they would make dua for themselves, right? You make Quran, read Quran for yourself, you know, you... And, and, and so people use it as a kapa as well, right? You're going for hajj, make dua for me. Right? And the guy is drinking and he's interested and he's got seven houses of mortgages and he's doing all sorts. But you're going for hajj, make dua for me. Right? As if it's, it's done. Right? He makes dua, alhamdulillah, it's okay, I don't need to do anything else. So we use it as like a kind of an excuse as well. So the hadith says those people who don't seek ruqya from others. 
But they make because the Prophet used to make ruqya upon himself. He would read Fatiha and Falaq and Nas, and he would blow over himself. Right? That's the difference between the two. Nothing online? Okay, that's good. Is there anyone online? It's like a blank screen. Any questions from anyone else? Any sisters have questions? Brothers? Okay. Um, you mentioned a couple of weeks back about a protection to do ruqya. So after every furtsala, you read falak and nasuli. But after maghrib and the isha, you read them three times each. How do you compile them? Do you have to read them four times in, or do you have the same? Do you have no, no. So the so in terms of reading falak and nas after salah, the Prophet used to read them after every salah, every obligatory salah. Right? Fajr, dhuhr, asr, maghrib, isha. He would read falak and nas. But after fajr and maghrib. He would read them three times. So it's not three at one, it's just three times. So once each, and then three after Fajr, and three after, um, after Maghrib. Yeah. Okay, Jazakumullah khair. Inshallah, same time, Inshallah, next week, same place. Jazakumullah khair. Jazakumullah khair. Pause it first. Uh, no, the top.